tonight is a little bit different than a lot of weeks. Usually we have three points. We're going to talk about this and this and this, and it's somewhat structured and linear, and tonight not so much. Think about the next 20 or so minutes is more of a meditation where my goal is to do the best I can to feed us this vision, this passage, piece by piece, bite by bite. Your job is to look. Because that's what John says. It's the, it's the command on the very first words out of his mouth. After these things I looked and behold, which is a word in the Bible that means look. And if you've ever been at the edge of the Grand Canyon or the edge of Niagara Falls or the Pacific Ocean for the first time and you say to one of your friends, Hey, dude, come here and look. You would be a little thrown off if he or she ran over with a notepad and said and started taking notes on the geological formations of, oh, look, that rock structure, that, that was the hard rock, so that didn't erode, but this did erode. You'd be like, no, 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 put the notes down. Just look. Just look. John is saying to you tonight, look. An outline would get in the way of you looking because all he wants you to do is see And so that's what we're going to do, kind of an extended meditation or just dwelling on this vision and what we see um, tonight. So why don't you stand up and we will read Revelation 4 and then talk about it. This is uh, John writing. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Or look, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, that voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and like ruby in his appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne there were twenty-four thrones, other thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting. They were clothed in white garments. They had golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before, before the throne was something, something like a sea, but of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is coming. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever... When they do that, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. They will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will take off their crowns. They will cast their crowns before His throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, because You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. Why don't you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, wow. John is stretching and reaching and trying to find words and things that he's experienced that can capture what just happened, what he just saw. Help us catch that vision. Help us to see because you tell us to look. So Lord, help us to see. Use your power that we see about it, hear about in this passage. Use that power on our behalf tonight to do these things. We ask in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So every single item in the Oval Office is symbolic. And every single item in the Oval Office was strategically selected and strategically positioned. And it's there because it tells a story. Uh, It tells a story about the office. It tells a story about who is in the office. But every single item in the Oval Office is strategic. Full of symbolism, full of imagery. I don't know if you've noticed uh, any pictures of the president in his office, but behind his desk, that big wooden desk, there's two flags. One's the American flag. That makes sense. The other is the presidential flag. Has the presidential seal on it. You know what seal that is? It's on the money. It's on the president's podium. It's the image of an eagle. And this eagle, it's these two massive talons, just muscular talons. And in the right talon of the eagle, it's clutching a bundle of olive branches. Very symbolic. The right hand is the preferred hand. It's the strong hand. It always has been in every culture. Right hand is a sign of strength. And so in the right hand of the eagle, it's clutching olive branches, a symbol of peace. As if to say that we're a peace-loving people, that that's our preference. We're not here to take over anything or impose on anybody. We're a peace-loving people. But just because we're a peace-loving people, don't cross us. Because in the left talon of the eagle is a bundle of arrows, like weapons. There's flags in the Oval Office, paintings with the flag of don't tread on me. You know the old colonial flag? It's a snake and it says don't tread on me. As if to warn you, don't mess with us. You'll get bitten. There are busts, bronze sculptures throughout the Oval Office. Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln. Those are there to tell a story of you are in the presence of giants. This office is bigger than you. It's bigger than whatever agenda you came in to peddle. It's bigger than whatever argument you have with the president. This is a place not where history happens. This is a place where history is made. The desk. The desk, you think, well, that's just there. It's a functional little piece of furniture so the president has something to write on. But even the desk tells a story. The desk that's been in the Oval Office since George W. Bush, Obama, Trump, it's FDR's desk. It's the desk that he signed the New Deal on. The the stuff that goes out of your paycheck to Social Security and then comes back to you maybe one day later on. That's the desk that all of that stuff happened. It's the desk that JFK went through the Cuban Missile Crisis in. It's the phone on the desk. You think, well, it's just the phone. No, the phone is even symbolic because on the phone is a red button. And in the old days, it was a red phone, little dial phone. And that's telling the story to all the people who come into the Oval Office or see this. Don't you realize 
that the destruction of your country is a phone call away. And it communicates power because on this phone are dozens of buttons. You want to talk to the president of Russia? Push this one. You want to talk to the Chinese uh, president? Talk to, push this button. German chancellor? Push that button. Everything in there from the carpet to the drapes to the flags to the bust to the paintings is symbolic. It's full of imagery. And it is there to tell a story. It's there to shrink you when you visit that office. And it's there to exalt the office of presidency. Not necessarily the man in the office, but the office of it. It's, it's to, there to overwhelm you with its power and authority and the amount of control that is in that room. It's there to tell a story. Now, there's been plenty of congressmen, foreign diplomats, foreign leaders, lobbyists who have walked into that Oval Office over the years with every intention of reading the President the Riot Act. I can't believe you did this. Why did you do that? Where were you on this issue? Or a lobbyist kind of trying to get him to give my company a favor, like, hey, can you throw us a bone and not sign this in the law, or can you give us some money over here? There's been plenty of foreign leaders who've gone in there to kind of say what's up to the President. But I'm a political science major, so I read this kind of stuff. Throughout the years, throughout the decades, whether it was Eisenhower or Obama or whatever, all of these men and women who walked into that office with these intentions, a lot of them will write accounts later saying, I walked out and I never delivered that tirade. I never asked for the favor. All I did when I walked into that room is the hair on the back of my head stood up and I looked around. And I'm like, that's the phone that Bush launched the Iraq war from. Like, that's the chair Reagan sat at. That's the window Nixon looked out of on his last night before he resigned in scandal. They walk into the Oval Office and they look. They walk into this command center, this control center, and it, everything in that office is designed to tell you this is where the power on planet Earth resides. All of it. And it, it overwhelms you. And so all those people went in with their agenda and they went out with a different agenda. Revelation chapter 4. The throne room of heaven, it's like the oval office of all reality. It's the command center of the known and the unknown universe. Not just the command center of our life or our little tiny world. It is where all of the power resides, all of the authority, all of the control. And it is where the king himself resides. And it's important to note, again, we said it a couple of weeks ago, no one had to leak this information to you. Because the occupant of that office, the king himself, Jesus, the almighty God, this passage calls him, walks to the door, opens the door, invites John in, and says, come. First sentence, first, first verse of the passage. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so this isn't a situation where we're left wondering, gee, I wonder what God is doing in this situation. Where is he? Why isn't he more engaged? He comes to you because he commands that John write these things down and he says, look, so at least get this in our little meditation tonight when you're just trying to slow down and think and listen and dwell in these things. See it with your mind's eye. Jesus thinks it's really important for you to see where he works. It's like take your kid to work day. 
It's the first vision. It's the first revelation of all these other revelations to come where he works. And it is the Oval Office of Reality. And it is designed for similar purposes of what the Oval Office is. Or I should say the symbolism and the imagery in, the, in, the, in Heaven's Oval Office should have the same effect on us that 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue should have on the visitors to that office. Because when John gets in this office, this throne room, where there is Jesus sitting on a throne surrounded by 24 other thrones and these weird, wild, crazy, what is that kind of creatures all around him chanting, when John gets into that, John left a lot smaller than he walked in there. When anybody is in the presence of this Jesus, they get smaller and he gets bigger. And the same stuff that the Oval Office, the effect it has on people, you might, you, might, you might approach Jesus with your agenda, your demands, your desires, the thing that you're lobbying for. You might approach him with your critique, your complaint, your tirade. But I guarantee you, every, every human being that we have a record of who met God face to face didn't launch into their tirade. They didn't read their list of desires or complaints. What they did is fell down feeling like they're going to die. He had to tell them, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Agenda is out the window. Because when you get into this room, when we look over John's shoulder and see Jesus in his office, see Jesus in the heavenly throne room, he gets bigger, you get smaller. Here's a big point to remember. When God gets bigger and you get smaller, life begins to fit again. Sanity comes back. Things make more sense. It's like the puzzle pieces finally that you've been trying to jam together that just don't fit, they finally come together in a coherent way. That's what happens when God gets big and you get small. Life starts to fit again. I'm not saying life works perfectly and it's all rose petals and, and unicorns from that point. Jesus is saying, come here so I can show you what must take place after this. It's a bad omen. If you've been around even one week of this series, you know this is a letter written to churches that were being murdered, persecuted. Their possessions were taken. They were dismissed. They were ostracized. You're the imbeciles of, this, of the society if you're a Christian. People laughed at you for your tiny little brain and your naive little belief in this Jesus guy. This is a book written to encourage these Christians. And so that is what John is laying his eyes on. And that is what John is allowing us to see, uh, to encourage us. There's a big point here, a little side note. Where do you think heaven is? If you know much about the Bible, you might remember Psalms and stuff talking about the heavens and like the high and lofty place or... Maybe you didn't grow up in the church and you, when you hear the question, everybody has an answer to this, even if it's a mysterious one. You're just like, I don't know, someplace far, far away. Don't miss this because I think this is important. Where is the Oval Office of Reality? Where is the command center, the control center of every single detail that has ever, is, or will happen? Where is it? Because that kind of matters, doesn't it? If it's like a billion light years away, it can help get to you when you need it. Is God really engaged? Does he know what's going on? 
think about this. We think about, and the Bible sometimes uses this spatial language of we're here and heaven's over there because it is doing what John's doing. It's trying to communicate something that is so mysterious it just busts our mind. Don't think about earth is here and heaven is some faraway place. Think about earth is here and heaven is here. It's like two layers of reality, two dimensions. It's like um, London and Narnia. They were coexistent, completely overlapped with each other. And there was a doorway from life and where all these four little kids were in the Chronicles of Narnia. There was a little wardrobe they walked through to get into the other dimension, to heaven. But this is, this, is, this is one of those, there's more to reality than meets the eye. Heaven isn't somewhere far away. Heaven is like right here. Where is Jesus dripping raw with power right now on behalf of his people? He's right here. He, he'd be surprised to hear we think he's far away. John, John says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Jesus says, come up here and I will show you. He's not saying come up here like I'm somewhere far away. The language that John is using here is language of behold I was praying and bam, door right here into heaven. Jesus said, walk through the door and see where I work. Heaven is not far away, which means help is not far away, which means Jesus is not far away, which means His power is not far away, which means His eyes aren't far away. It's all up in your business. It's all over us, which is a bit disconcerting and very comforting, right? Which I think is exactly the response it should produce because this is His world and we live in it, not the other way around. But heaven is near. Heaven is not far. And so when John steps into heaven, he goes like this. Not some far-off teletransported journey or something like that. It's pretty close. So John walks through the door. He follows Jesus' command. He walks in and he shrinks. How do we know this? How do we know that everybody who's in the presence of God, if you see God as He really is, how do I know you'll shrink? Look at what the 24 elders are doing. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them in a minute, but look at what they're doing. These guys, my goodness, like you think I'm tempted to worship them. Clothed in garments of white, they're pure, they're regal, they're powerful. They have a throne, like a stone's throw away from Jesus' throne. You're like, man, what's going on with these 24 elders? Why are they there? What's this about? What are they doing? It says every time the living creatures worship Jesus, what do the, what do these guys do? Take off that crown. And I don't think it's like a this like pageantry of blah 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 blah, and then like you're laying a wreath at a tomb or something, like making a big deal. I think it is like this crown doesn't belong on my head in his presence. It's like you walk into the Oval Office and you're like whoosh. All of a sudden, your agenda doesn't matter as much. His agenda does. And so I, I think it's this, just throwing, casting these crowns. Get this off of me. This belongs in front of him, not in front of me. I don't belong wearing gold. He does. These living creatures, what are they saying day and night? The passage says literally in the Greek, they don't tire or they never take a break. They don't nap. They don't, they don't rest from saying night and day, 24-7, 365, since Jesus ascended into heaven. Worthy or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, which is a word of two words, all might. He is the only one who has all of the might. He is almighty. 
who was and who is and who is coming, which means he didn't have a start date, he doesn't have an expiration date. Everything else in the universe and the cosmos has a start date and an expiration date. God doesn't. So the elders are deflecting glory and saying, no, 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 no attention for me. Put it on him. Put it on him. The living creatures, these dudes are crazy. Eyes on the front and back, six wings. Like, talk about another thing you're either going to wet your pants over or to be tempted to worship. And they are like, it's not about us, even though we look crazy. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. And then you look at John himself. Look at how he talks down in verse 9 and 10. Every time he even gets close to talking about Jesus, he pulls over and he just, he worships. He says, verse 9, he says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, yeah, him who sits on the throne, to him, I can't go on, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him, him who sits on the throne, and they'll worship him, him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy, worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created. Because you sustain. Not the elders, not the living creatures, not all these other crazy things. You did all of that. That's why we bow down and we worship. That's my proof from this passage that if you are a person who has truly seen and met God, the immediate effect that has on you is you get small and He gets big and life gets put back into order. Sanity comes back. You start to feel like you're getting the hang of this thing called life. It reorders your solar system. You're like, man, my entire existence is unto the goal of glorifying and enjoying and loving God. That's the reason I'm here. My job, my school, my relationship, my sexuality, my intellect, my body, every single thing I have or am or do revolves around the worship of the worthy one. That's how it puts things back into order and, and makes you sane. Now, if you hear this language of when, you, when God becomes big, you become small, if that's sounding bad to you, i got great news for you. What if you were meant to be small? What if your maker designed you to be small and to be big in his presence is freakish? Would you like to be 10 feet tall at NMSU? I bet you wouldn't. Because I bet you would feel freakish everywhere you went. Your head is bent, like, you'd have to, like, bend down to your knees to get through this door. Everybody would be looking at you. What's wrong with that guy? What's wrong with that girl? What happened? They grew up under power lines? Like, what's going on? (laughs) You would not want that because if you're meant to be, I'm going to be generous here, four feet to six feet. Jake's not here tonight. Four feet to seven feet. That's normal. And if you were that 10 foot tall person, you would see it as a wonderful thing if someone said, hey, would you like me to shrink you back down to the size you're supposed to be? We experience this with our weight too, right? What if you were made by your maker to be tiny but beautiful? Tiny but significant. Worthy or worth a lot because the one whose image you bear, not worth a lot because you're so big and so important. 
But you're tiny and you bear the image of an infinite one. You bear the image of a beautiful one, of a cosmic one. What if that's what makes you valuable? What if that's what makes you worthwhile? Not your size, your ego, how much attention you get, how special God thinks you are. Guys, when God pulls the curtains back and lets you see him as he is, it dismantles all of our childish little thoughts about God, right? He's not teddy bear. He's the one who sits on the throne and just like Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, the Jews wouldn't touch the mountain. They thought they would die if they touched the mountain. Because up at the top of the organ, they look up there and it's like lightning, it's thunder, it's earthquakes. Moses seeing God's glory. John is saying that Moses was meeting with Jesus. Because the same thing that happened at Mount Sinai is happening here. There is lightning coming out of this throne. Thunder. It, is, it feels unsafe. When you see God as He is, He is big. And you realize not just you shrink down to size, but you realize, I feel so normal now. This feels so right. For me to be tiny, for Him to be big for Him to have a crown on, and for any glory that I have to defer back to Him and to say, don't look at me. It's not about me. My life's not about me. My grades aren't about me. My brain isn't about me. My body's not about me. My personality's not about me. It's about Him. It's about Him. He's the worthy one. He is worth your praise, not me. Doesn't that seem somewhat refreshing and attractive? Don't you want that? Isn't life burdensome and hollow and pathetic when it's all about us. I know we all kind of want it to be all about us. I get it. I do too. But at the same time, it's like we know that what we love is poison. We don't like being overinflated. We don't like being the big kid on the block. That comes with a lot of pressure trying to be God. Some of you are so bored with God because He is so tiny and you are so big. And you come into His office with your list of complaints and your list of demands and your list of... uh, Desires here, do this for me, do this for me. And here's actually wonderful news for you. I think all you have to do, I think you're in the Oval Office, all you have to do is lift your eyes up and start looking around at who He is and who you're not. And your apathy would die. Your boredom would be like a bug in a bug zapper. Bam, gone. How can you be bored in the presence of this? Is it possible to be bored with God if you've actually seen Him? Is it possible to be insecure with whatever circumstances are going on in your life if you know that this Jesus is right here? It's like if you saw on His desk a file with your name on it and a paper inside of it with with the title that was like the tragedy or the confusing dilemma that you're in right now. Wouldn't that be encouraging? Like, he's on it. He knows about that. Like, he's working on it. He's in his own... I'm on his desk. He's working on my situation. Even if you didn't get to read the game plan in there, get to read what he's going to do with your confusion or your uncertainty about the future or the heartbreaking stuff that's happened to you and you don't know how it's going to resolve, how he's going to bring it to a good place later on. Even if you didn't get all of the information, wouldn't you leave that Oval Office, wouldn't you leave the throne room with much greater confidence 
I don't know what he's going to do, but I know who's in control of it. I know who has my file. I know he's good. When you are in the presence of God, he gets big, you get small, life begins to fit and work again. So again, if you find yourself bored, apathetic, scared, which to some extent is all of us, the call to you is to look. That's your to-do from this passage. Look. Which presumes perhaps you have not been looking. Because it's right here. Right in this passage. We have got to start interpreting our lives and our circumstances through the lens of God. Scripture. You can't interpret your life through just what you know because we don't have the whole picture, right? You don't have the old picture. It's like if you had a friend at some other college and you're going through some situation and all they knew about your whatever dilemma you're in was just like one sentence worth of information. Would you go to them for counsel and advice? No. Why? Not because they're a bad friend. They don't know your situation. Why do we trust our interpretation so much? Why do we trust our conclusions about where Jesus is or isn't, what he is doing or not doing, how he's bad or good? Why do we trust ourselves instead of listening to him tell us who he is? Because we're like that friend who has one sentence of information, one degree of information, and the other 359 we're blind to. You have to let Jesus tell you where he is. You have to let him tell you what he's doing. How about we end here? Let's take a look around the Oval Office real quick and see what's in it. He says there's a throne, and he says, behold, or look, it's not just a throne, there's someone sitting in it. Someone is at the control desk. Someone has the reins in his hands. And the one who is reigning is sitting. Ann and I are watching West Wing again. West Wing makes me nauseous because they're always walking. If you've ever watched that show about the White House, it's like they're just like speed walking through all the things. It's so busy and frantic and chaotic. Not the throne room of heaven, not the oval office of all reality. He's sitting. He's not frantic. He's not worried about cultural trends. He's not worried about the Chinese church being persecuted and murdered. He's concerned about it. He's not worried about it like, oh no, what am I going to do? He's in control. You think, the, you think the Chinese government's in control? No, Jesus is calling the shots. Caesar, to these Christians, said, I am your Lord and I am your God. Pledge allegiance to me. Caesar said, I am in control. Caesar had an oval office. Caesar said, I'm where the buck stops. Jesus said, I don't think so. You are a bit player in my play. And you will do only what I let you do, what command you to do, nothing more. All these presidents, all these isms, secularism, racism, politicism, atheism, all these things will come and will go because they're not in control. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is coming is in control. He lasts. So that's the throne. There's a rainbow around the throne. The rainbow from the Old Testament. It's not a, hey, it's all happy now. It's a battle bow. After the flood, God hangs his bow in the sky to say, I will never use this again. I will never cleanse the earth and start over again. I will redeem it from within. I will come inside of it and clean it up from the inside out through the person of Jesus. 
So he hangs his bow in the sky. I don't need this anymore. I'm not going to war with humanity anymore. I am reconciling myself to humanity. I'm making peace with my enemies now. There's a rainbow blazing behind this throne Jesus is sitting in. He says there's a sea. And I, John's confused by this. He says a sea of glass. And he's like, 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 like crystal. If you've been around RUF long enough, we've talked about all these patches. If first century Palestinians, the sea was dangerous. It was a place of chaos. You go out to sea to go fishing, you never come back. You don't know how to swim. You don't have life jackets. The sea always represents in the Bible chaos, destruction, kind of fate unhinged where you just get ambushed by bad news. You get calls you didn't expect. You get horrible things that happen to your family or you or your friends. That's what the sea was just a symbol for. What does it mean that there is a sea, a sea in the Oval Office of All Reality, in heaven's throne room, right before Jesus? And what does it mean that it's... You ever been on the lake one day when it's so tranquil it just looks like a mirror? It means that Jesus is aware of the chaos and He's in control of it. And He tames it. Which means for His people, you can face chaos. Because even at this very moment, Jesus has tamed it. Whatever you think is going to sink you, kill you, destroy you, whatever you think has taken away your future, if you are united to Jesus at this very moment, the sea that feels very tumultuous to you, if you pull back the curtains, it all goes away. You could see your reflection and it's so tranquil. Doesn't that help you endure? Doesn't that help you persevere without throwing in the towel and throwing Jesus under the bus, walking away from the faith? Man, I thought this was real, but where is God? Look. 24 thrones, 12 representatives of the tribe of Israel, the church before Jesus' death and resurrection, 12 apostles, the church after Jesus' death and resurrection. Where is Jesus? We talked about a couple of weeks ago. With His people. He's with His people. Where else would you expect Him to be? Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am also. Why? Because He loves to be with His people. Why would He give His life for people He doesn't want to be around? He's with His people. And these living creatures, one like a lion, one like a calf, one like an eagle, one like the face of a man... Other literature at the time, other places in Daniel and in Isaiah, you connect all these dots of this, what this imagery means. These are representatives of pretty much everything on earth that has the breath of life in it. The lion is the king of the beasts. The ox is the king of, of livestock or cattle or domesticated animals. The eagle is the king of the air, king of the birds. And man is king of it all. So what you're, do, what you're seeing is a picture of representatives of all of humanity Israel and the church which is not ethnic which is every tongue every tribe every nation representatives of all of mankind representatives of all of the living creatures as if to say do you get it? everything is about Jesus everything is about his worth it all revolves around him so let's end with two pieces of application if you know Jesus and if you don't. If you don't know Jesus, understand this. Every other creature in God's creations thinks you're weird. 
I get it. This sounds weird to you. You're like, what the heck is he talking about now? But pull back the curtains of reality. When God looks at the world, he sees rocks that are worshiping him. Jesus says that if you tell these little kids to be quiet, the rocks themselves will start worshiping me. The water worships God. Jesus said, peace be still, and it stopped. Jesus said, surface tension be go- or increase, and he walks across it. His creation obeys him. The birds worship him, Scripture says. The sun worships him. The sunset proclaims his glory. Every single molecule of creation acknowledges he is king and worships him for it, except rebel men and women. It turns the tables on us, guys. Is following Jesus the weird, freakish thing? No, not following him is the weird, freakish thing. If we had eyes to see. The rocks, the birds are looking at you like, what is wrong? The living creatures, the elders are saying, what world are you living in? Look. It also says this is not a God to be ignored or toyed with. Because just like the Oval Office, you see the symbols, you see the images, you get the message. Don't cross this president. We at least need to appreciate the fact that this is not a king to be toyed with or gamed around with or ignored or dismissed. He is king and he demands that you deal with him. And the very last thing, if you do know him or if you want to know this Jesus, my question to you that I hope rings in your ears as you leave is how did any of these people get into the Oval Office? Y'all know not just anybody gets in there. Secret Service has that baby on lockdown. Wouldn't you imagine heaven's Oval Office is a little more guarded than ours? (laughs) How did these guys get in there? They're 24 elders. Have you read the Bible? Do you know what Israel was like? Like the Old Testament is one long, never-ending story of how screwed up they were, how sinful they were, how compromising they were, how disloyal they were. How did they get a seat at the table? And then the church, which is us. I don't even have to explain that. What was your week like? How do these people have access? This should baffle us. Not only access, but a throne and a crown next to him. How? Get this, not because of what they did at all, because of what he did. The good news of the Bible, the good news of Christianity is this. God gives you access, so stop trying to earn your access. That is what grace is. God gives you the VIP pass and he says, I know you think I hate you. We are enemies at the moment, but don't you know I've come to to make peace between us? I've got this VIP badge, it's for you. Don't you want to wear it? Then you can come in and out. That's how you get access, is what Jesus has done on your behalf, not what you have done for Him. The gospel is not do a bunch of stuff for God and make Him happy. The gospel is God has done everything for you. Simply acknowledge your need of it. If you are united to Jesus tonight, this is your home. You belong here. Heaven is yours. Heaven is coming here. This is your Jesus. He's not a terrifying thought anymore. He's not a threat. 
He is the one who shrinks you down to the size you're supposed to be so that you can be normal and good and healthy and whole and alive again. Whether you know him or not, I call you back to Jesus tonight and say, look, look again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to look. That's our prayer. Help us to look. And we know, from your, we know from Scripture that that is even an impossible task apart from you giving us eyes to see. So my prayer is a big one. My prayer is that you would give all of us eyes to see you right now where you are. Not in some far off galaxy, but right in front of our face. Make that happen. We pray in your name. Amen.